Hey guys, welcome back to 30-something with Sunny. Um, I'm really excited about today's interview. We are talking with the author of an incredibly moving book. It's called The Goodbye Diaries. The author, Marissa Bardak-Rammel, is also a program advisor with Newhouse NYC. And she has written, along with her mother, the most touching book that um, you can imagine about... um, well, what is frankly a really tragic circumstance, her mother being diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And the book is a series of very personal diary entries that Marissa and her mother made shortly after her mother's diagnosis and through the point of her mother's death. Um, it is raw. It's honest. Um, it brings forth so many emotions, whether you're someone who experienced tragedy at a young age or really at any point, or if you're just a parent or a child who values that um, crazy, wonderful relationship between a mother and a daughter, this is something that I promise, promise is worth your time. Um, I was excited to talk to Marissa not only about her journey and her mother's journey, what they went through medically speaking, but also how Marissa has taken all of the tragedy of her experience with her mother and translated it into um, lessons and um, sort of things that she pulls strength from now as a parent herself. Um, I really think that anyone, especially moms of daughters or daughters themselves, will just, um, you're going to love this book. Keep a box of tissues nearby. Um, Marissa's work is going to be released, The Goodbye Diaries, in early May, so you should be able to get it very soon, just in time for Mother's Day. And she's also doing a series of speaking engagements all around the um, New York area. So if you happen to be a listener in that corner of the world, be sure to check out goodbyediaries.com, and she's going to list all of her promotional events for the book coming up there as well. Um, It's a funny conversation, it's a touching conversation, and it is something that I promise you will take Take a lesson from. I hope you enjoy this interview again with Marissa Bardak Rammel, author of The Goodbye Diaries. I actually am just personally curious what it's like to to raise kids in the city because that's got to be crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, raising kids in the city is it's sometimes awesome and sometimes hell. It like depends <laughs> on the moment. Like I think that's motherhood in general, though. Like you have a moment where like I'll have like two kids in the bath and they'll be happy and playing and splashing and I'll be like I have this down and then like the next minute my son will like take a duck of water and like dump it on the baby's head and then like (laughs) all hell has broken loose and then you're like I can't I don't have any control over this at all yeah oh yeah and and like living in the city like you just have these moments like taking two kids to the grocery store in the city is is like a marathon. I mean, it, it is unreal because you can't park near your apartment where you live. You have to park wherever you find a spot. And I live in a neighborhood that's very like overcrowded. And um, I mean, how do you even have a car? Like this, these are the mysteries to us suburbanites here, Marissa. I do. I like watch from a distance in awe. I'm like these city dwellers. We went to New York recently and my husband and I, our jaws were on the floor. We're like, people live here with kids. It's crazy. And and I mean, I just, I, I give you so much respect. <laughs> no, I, I told my husband recently, I was like, you should basically like kiss my feet that I just took two kids to the grocery store. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like it's taking two kids to the grocery store. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It, it is. It's so much more than that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have like a baby who's like not even one. Right. So she goes in the little front seat of the grocery cart. And then I've got like the three and a half year old who occasionally is like holding onto the back. Occasionally is just running around the store um, you know, I see an apple, I see cereal, like run, oh, yeah. run, 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 run. And like, you're trying to keep in your, you also like have to actually do the grocery shopping, right? You have to keep, <laughs> I have a, an actual like paper list because I can't even like, even just look at a list on my phone anymore is not doable with the two kids. So like, oh, no, I have no, the paper list, then like the baby's trying to eat the list. My son is trying to like rip it up <laughs> and I'm trying, and then you're trying to price compare, like. I mean, you're you're like which almonds cost less, and you're oh, it's it's and like if you make that price compare, you might lose your toddler. <laughs> you will. It only takes about four seconds. Right. I mean, I, it's it's shocking how much um, destruction they can cause or how much chaos. And they're cute while they're doing it. I turned my back for forty five seconds yesterday, and the two year old literally had permanent marker all over the walls, 
all over the, and the floor now the floor cleaned up <laughs> the walls up but it's just testament and I just you know I just love laughing with other moms about it because you know especially coming from a place and of 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 order or of having had a career or some sort of predictable pattern or schedule beforehand we have the hardest time with the with the you know adjustment to that because you just really people laugh and I'm like you just really don't have control that's just the bottom line you just need to accept that <laughs> yeah and sometimes I think every mom like there are times when like you're good at relinquishing it and I'm like we're at the grocery store he should be able to like walk around on his own and I want him to like look at the different color apples and and make choices about which color apple he wants today like I know those are all good parenting things to do with a toddler and then there are moments of just like no I can't handle it you need to like <laughs> hold on to the cart you may not let go of the cart <laughs> oh yeah you need to get some of those zip ties, Marissa, just right the wrists, right on the edge of the car, and they just like ride with you. <laughs> I always say we like understand the kids on a leash now. We like I know. always criticized it and like I haven't stooped to it yet. I won't say stooped because oh. like that's a little judgy, but like I like but I'm sure I will get to a point where that happens. And like my friend always says in the city she like had to because her daughter was just like a rebel without a cause and like would you know, there are like parking garages every two stores you know so oh, like yeah. it's dangerous it's dangerous so mm -hmm. it's like and now my child is on a leash oh my goodness gracious well i i love hearing a little bit about like your life now and 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 i have said this already in the intro but i read your book i want to gosh okay so <clears throat> Your book is called The Good Goodbye Diaries, and um, as I was mentioning in the intro, it is, it's sort of like a back-and-forth diary between Marissa and her mother after her mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and Marissa, it is so beautifully, beautifully executed, and um, I want to start this interview because I know we're going to be talking a ton about the book and all the things you've gone through and learned, but I want to hear about your mom as we get started because her voice shines through and her essence really comes through in all of, these, uh, in all of the words so beautifully. Thank you. Um, would you like to just hear about her? Yeah, tell me about her. <laughs> um, so my mom, her name is Sally, and um, she... You know, I, the more I think about it, she was so many things the way we're all so many different sides of ourselves. Like she was someone who everyone always wanted to talk to. My dad would tease her that like strangers would tell her their life story in the grocery store. Like she would come home and be like, and I was talking to this woman, Barbara, and she told me she's getting a divorce and she was really torn about it. And we're like, who's Barbara? And she's like, oh, the woman <laughs> behind me at the grocery store in line, you know? And I'm like, so she had this kind of like, we joked that she had like a talk to me sign on her forehead. She was that person who just, you felt very comfortable talking to. I think she wasn't very judgmental. She was very open. She was very sympathetic. Um, she just loved people. She was really like a people person. And, and then on the flip side, she was very sarcastic and very funny and like kind of outlandish and would say whatever was on her mind. And in this way that was like totally freeing and funny and like she was so fun to be around also like she was kind of like great at a party you know like she would just have and she was always throwing herself under the bus like there's this story that she retells in one of her chapters about she started swimming once she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she um would go do laps at the y and um she she um, one day went into the locker room after doing her laps and she wore glasses so she couldn't wear glasses while she was swimming so she was really blind without these glasses and she goes into the locker room and all of a sudden she's seeing all these old men in towels and she is just um, oh my goodness you know and she's she's mortified but she's also um, you know, she just laughs at herself. She's like, of course I walked into the men's room. And then, you know, when she says something funny to the guy, she says like, are you in the wrong place or am I? You know, and that was kind of her sense of humor was like, I'm in this embarrassing situation and let me just have some fun with it. And then she, yeah. like, she retold that story to everyone. I mean, that was like the Sally locker room story. So like, she That's always funny. had a good story. Um, and... Um, I felt really lucky to have her as my mom. She was kind of that mom 
who I think all of my friends kind of wished she was their mom. And that sounds kind of like obnoxious to say, and I don't mean it at all in an obnoxious way. I mean it really um, sort of just that was, she was very modern and she was very easy to talk to. And she, you didn't feel like you had to keep things from her. And, and at the time she got sick, I was 17. Um, she died when I was 20. So I was still in that age. And so were my friends of, you know, how much do you share with your mom as a teenager, right? Like you have your first kiss. Are you going to tell your mom about it or not? Did it, are you going to tell your mom or not? Did it change the way? And I know you get into this and I do want to dive deep into like your relationship as her disease progressed, but did it force you to into adulthood and into um, like sort of a time of reflection a lot earlier than you probably otherwise would have been? You know, it's so hard to tell. I think that's something that probably everyone deals with when they lose someone close to them is that it's so hard to know, like, what would I have been like if she didn't get sick? What would our relationship have been like if she didn't get sick? What would my life be like now if I didn't lose her? Would I have chosen the same husband? Would I have had kids at the same time I did? Would I have made the same moves in my career that I did? You know, it's just, um, I think sometimes I feel like it, it, life almost feels like a choose your own adventure of, I sort of always wonder what that path would have been like had she not gotten sick and died when I was so young. Because I think that's a totally different life and a totally different person than who I am today. Um, and it's and it's kind of, I don't feel sad about that. I just feel curious. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mm-hmm. feel really curious of what that life would have been like. So um, there's a whole chapter called Reactions in your book where um, you dedicate some some time to talking about how you processed your mom's diagnosis. And I know when it first came in, it was a matter of months that they said she had, but um, ended up years, thankfully. But as a young person, it was just so interesting to read about how difficult it is for a person in school and growing herself to carry the burden of that kind of a tragedy and how to process it, not only for yourself individually, but you talk all about um, how to explain it to your friends and not wanting to appear like a victim. Um, You say, I'm different than most people in my town. When you grow up in Long Island, even death turns into gossip. I know if I tell Sherry or Haley, they'll tell others, and the others will tell more others, and pretty soon the whole school will be staring at me as I walk through the halls. Um, Having been a teenage girl who knows how quickly gossip travels, that was poignant to me, but obviously the difference here is you're not talking about, you know, who you're going to the dance with. You're talking about something that's just life-changing. Was that just... um, just tremendously difficult to sort of balance all these adult things as a kid? Um, I always, you know, it's funny. I was talking to someone recently who lost her mom when she was 25 and she said, and she had read my book and she said, I was so angry with you in the first half of the book because you were being so terrible to your mother. And here she's diagnosed with this terminal illness and, um, I said, I'm, she said, you know, I'm so mad at you. And I said, well, I, I said, you know, you lost your mom at 25. I said, that's such a different age than me being 17 when she was diagnosed and also losing her at 20. I said, at 25, you've graduated college probably, you've started a job, maybe you live on your own separate from your parents. Like, you've sort of made some steps into adulthood even though it's only, if I lost my mom at 20 and she lost hers at 25, it's only a five-year difference. It doesn't seem like a lot, but the milestones that you make in your life are totally different. Whereas when I, when my mom was diagnosed when I was 17, I, I was a senior in high school. I still lived at home, um, obviously. I was, um, you know, it was January of my senior year, so I was in that moment of waiting to find out where I was going to be accepted to college and and how far away I was going to go from my family. And I was waiting to find out who I was going to take to prom, and um, which sounds so trivial, but at that moment in your life, it's, it feels huge to you. Um, and I also was becoming very critical of the community that I grew up in, which I think most people do. You start to have this like hate for your hometown because you know you're about to go away so you sort of have an opportunity to hate on it because you're like well I'm getting out of here anyway and mm-hmm. um, so I was really um, 
scared of becoming a piece of gossip at my high school. And I felt like, you know, I only have like six more months left of school anyway. Um, maybe I can keep it a secret. Mm -hmm. And so I only told my best friend, Laura, um, who's a very prominent character in the book, mm -hmm. um, because she's really the only friend who knows about it. And I, um, I kept it a secret from everyone else in my high school. And there are many moments in the book where I debate telling someone, I debate telling a guy that I like, um, who I think would be really supportive, but I still don't want everyone to know. And I, I debate telling one of my teachers who I feel really close to, one of my English teachers who knew that I wanted to study writing and journalism. And I felt very close to him. And it, there are just all these moments in the book and, and in my life at that time where it was on the tip of my tongue and I couldn't make myself say it. And I think part of it was not wanting to share that news and part of it was not wanting to say it out loud and have it be real. Um, and um, in hindsight, I so wish I had been brave enough to share it with a few more friends at least, to share it maybe with one teacher. I really needed support. I was really struggling. Um, I was very depressed. I was very anxious. Um, and I was terrified. And I, I really could have gotten some support from sharing it. But as a teenager, um, you want so much to be like everyone else at your school. You want so much to blend in. You, you don't really want to stand out for what feels like a, a negative reason. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's very challenging to be that age and get a diagnosis like that. I think um, any age that you, that you have a parent who's sick or, or a parent who dies, I think is difficult for its own reasons. And I think um, being at that age of 17 um, on the, where you're not quite a kid and you're not quite an adult and you're trying to figure yourself out, you're trying to think about creating a new identity for yourself once you go away to college. Um, it's a really hard time to not have your mom in your life the same way um, you once did. And um, even when she was sick, she, she, you know, she wasn't obviously quite the same mom that she had been prior to being sick. Um, and our relationship wasn't the same. What was the turning point in accepting her diagnosis and, and the change that you saw in yourself? The turning point, and it's, and it's interesting because it sort of ended up happening in the book in like kind of the halfway part of the book, I feel like, and it really happens when I go away to college. Um, I went away to Syracuse University, which was about five hours uh, drive from my hometown in Long Island. And um, I think a lot of teenagers, when they go away to college, that is a time when they have a chance to sort of take a breath from their parents and get some of that space that they crave so much. And then there's like a moment of like, oh, I actually kind of miss them or I actually kind of <laughs> like them or... Um, there's just a space in that relationship where you can start to see them differently and they can start to see you differently. They miss you too. Um, they don't have to nag you about cleaning your room anymore and suddenly they like miss <laughs> nag you about cleaning your room. Um, so um, that was really when things started to change for my mom and I. It started to change a little bit the summer before I went away to college because we knew this separation was coming and I think we were both starting to already miss each other even though it hadn't happened yet and um, we we basically had had this big argument um, about a month or two after she was diagnosed because right after she was diagnosed I really just pretended like she was dead already the doctor had told her she had two months to live and I said you know what two months what's two months two months is nothing like why am I going to have all these like sweet last moments with her when like she's going to be dead basically like tomorrow? Like, and so I really just shut her out. I would come home from school, go right up to my room, not even say hello to her. Um, I, um, our relationship was so close before then. And then it felt like overnight it was totally different. Mm -hmm. And, I was really in a lot of denial about her illness, and um, and then we basically had this massive blowout that you read about in the book, and 
Um, after that, we slowly kind of started creeping back towards each other again. And yeah. in the time, that got better. And then certainly once I went away to school, we would have these midnight phone calls that uh -huh. we back together. So sweet. I loved reading all about you talking about pacing through the halls with your cordless phone. And in college, when people are, you know, doing keg stands and like out partying at frat parties. And um, I, I loved it. It's um, you touched on the difficulties of dealing with this as a young person. And that's what I loved about this book was that it, it's honest. It is not a um, not that these books aren't great, but it's not too chicken soup of a vibe. It's um, it's very raw at moments. And it speaks to the really complicated relationship and beautiful relationship of a mother and daughter, where I feel like we seek friendship in each other, even from a young age, we know that we have parts that complete each other but when you're faced with an obstacle a life-changing obstacle like like you guys were you have to find a way around it and and what's so beautiful about the sort of tone in, in the pacing of your book is that i found myself wondering okay when is she you know going to hit that next revelation when is she gonna um you know when is her mom going to appreciate what she's going through it's it's a very active dynamic for there being for it all being sort of like underground feelings right and and you're a mom now too of a little girl and i can imagine that um you probably have so many thoughts in your mind about um how beautiful but also complex that relationship can be it definitely and the prologue um Oh, your prologue. Can we just say tear? I, I, I think I, I like took a picture of one of the paragraphs. It was, it's so beautifully moving. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I did. I put it on Instagram stories. I was like, this book is already making me cry. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I, you know, the prologue I wrote 10 days before my daughter was due and she actually ended up coming on her due date, which is I think that's so weird when that happens, but um, she was, um, as my friend said, she's a very considerate daughter. She just that's came great. right up her duty. <laughs> Let's hope that lasts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I, you know, prior to her arriving, I felt so anxious, first of all, because I mean, so my, um, my son is three and a half. My daughter is almost one now. And I mean, I, I love having a son. I feel like I always joke he gets a little like sidelined in the prologue because it's so much about having a daughter, but he'll forgive me one day. Um, <laughs> After years of therapy, Marissa. <laughs> he, he gets a bigger thank in the, in the acknowledgement. There you go. So I think that makes up for it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, when I found out I was having a girl, I just, I wanted a daughter so badly after losing my mom. I just, it was just such a deep, deep want that I couldn't deny, you know, I just wanted it so badly. And, and my mom had also had a son and a daughter in the same succession as me. So I also knew that dynamic. I knew like having an older brother and being the younger sister and, um, being my parents' little girl. And I, um, I just, when I found out it was a girl, I just, I was so excited, but I was also terrified because I said, when you get something that you really want, is there like another shoe waiting to drop? Like I, and I think that's a feeling that a lot of people have after losing someone close to them in general, you feel like you're bracing yourself for losing someone else. Um, and so I felt this anxiety of like keeping her safe while she was inside of me. And then I also felt this anxiety of what happens when she comes out? Like, am I going to try way too hard to recreate this relationship that my mother and I had? And I know that relationships don't work that way. Like mm -hmm. I'm not going to be Sally and my daughter's not going to be Marissa. And how am I going to accept that? yes, I have this mother-daughter relationship in my life again, but it's not that one. And and am I going to try too hard to make it that one in a way that puts an immense amount of pressure on my daughter or an, an immense amount of pressure on me? Like, what if we're not as close as my mom and I were? What, do, what am I going to do with those feelings? Um, right. And, you know, I think there's so much anxiety when you're pregnant and at the end of your pregnancy, when you're worried about this transition. And um, now that she's here, I feel much more relieved about it because I think any mom knows like your kids are kind of who they are. Oh, girlfriend. Yes. They come out 
as they are, as they will be, as they shall be for life. I mean, you can make little tweaks, but right? Don't you think so? <laughs> you kind of know it so early. I mean, yeah. you know, like I feel like <laughs> even from the time they're born and then like every month, you know a little bit more of who they are. And like, I already know, like my daughter isn't quite like me. Like she's very strong willed in a way that I'm very easygoing. She's a lot more stubborn than me. Um, she might be more like my mom, who was more feisty and more out there and more, um, you know, I think we also are very much reactions to our parents. Sure. Sometimes we go in the opposite direction of our parent because you're trying to differentiate yourself. And I think because my mom was so outgoing and loud, I was a little more quieter because I was so happy and content being her sidekick. Like, I didn't need to do much. She could carry the show and I was like her favorite person along for the ride and that was the best place I loved being, you know? And and I think with my daughter, maybe it'll be that too, where she's that person who's more outgoing and, and more willing to, to go for things than I am and and maybe she'll take me along for the ride. And so I think if you're, I, I think maybe like the best thing you can do as a parent is let your kid be who they are and I think you have to do it anyway, even if you don't yes, want you do. to. So um, I feel much more like, okay, this is a different relationship than my mom and I had. And I still hope for that closeness. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I would still be devastated if we're not close, but I also feel like we will be. And I, I don't really feel worried about it in that way right. that I did when I was pregnant. The, the style of this book I mentioned too is it's called the Goodbye Diaries. It is a diary entry style. Like so, each chapter, um, you you go between you and your mom, um, having these like entries in these chapters. When you were putting this together, or when let me let me phrase it this way: when when you got the diagnosis, when she got the diagnosis, did you know this was something you wanted to do? Was to document it? You're a writer. Um, you said your mom had a creative bent as well. Did you know from the beginning that this was something you wanted to do together? Um, after my mom was diagnosed, everyone kept telling her, like, Sally, you should write a book about this. And I think part of it was that my mom wasn't a trained writer, but she always loved writing. She would write poetry. She would write these beautiful letters. She would write cards. She would always be the person who wrote eulogies for people because she was such a fantastic writer. And, um, and she, so everyone kept telling her, Sally, you need to write a book. And I think the other reason for that was that she had this different mindset about her diagnosis that I think was a little unusual at the time. Like people would ask her, you know, Sally, do you ask why me? And she would say, no, I say, why not me? Everyone has cancer, you know? Mm -hmm. So she just had this different vibe about what was going on. And she also felt really strongly like my work here is not done. I still have these children to raise. You know, my son is 20, my daughter's 17. Like they're not babies, but they're my babies. And, and I know I still have a lot of ways I need to guide them. Um, and so she felt really overwhelmed by the prospect of writing a book and would sort of shoo the idea away. And then she called me once I was at college. Um, she used to call me at midnight and my roommate and I would joke because everyone else was getting booty calls and I was getting <laughs> calls from my mother at midnight. Um, but I, I secretly loved them. Like the phone would ring and my roommate would look at me and be like, you know, it's your mom. And That's we would just so laugh. Funny. And then I would go talk to my mom for an hour. But she, one of those nights she called me and said, you know, Missy, everyone keeps telling me to write a book. I don't think I can do it. But what if we wrote it together? And I was in college um, at Syracuse University studying journalism. And I immediately loved this idea. And I, the next time I went home for break, we sat in my bedroom on my big double bed. And we um, came up with the chapters we wanted to write about. You know, we wanted to write about her diagnosis. We wanted to write about how our friendships had changed. We wanted to write about how our relationship had changed. We wanted to write about this big blowout fight that we had. Um, she wanted to write about how her marriage had changed from it. And we put together probably about eight chapters and then we said, okay, what if we alternate chapters? What if we each write a chapter about these topics? because we know that we're both going through the same thing, but in totally different ways, and that that's part of what had separated us. And, you know, what if there's another mother and daughter out there who could pick up this book, who might be going through the same thing, or might be going through some other kind of hardship, and what if they could 
read our experiences from each side and understand better what they're going through. And so we both set off on writing. My mom was a special education teacher and she had to retire when she was sick. So she all of a sudden had a lot of time on her hands and also knew she didn't have a lot of time left at all. She was still sort of operating under this two month prognosis even though she had seen a new doctor who had told her, I think I can keep you alive longer. I've kept patients alive for 10 years. Let's let's just fight this. And so we were sort of both adjusting to this. Okay, you have outlived this two-month prognosis, but we don't know how much time is left. We know it's it's really limited. So she began writing right away. I wrote some of my chapters in college, but of course was also taking class. In college. <laughs> and, you know, hanging out with friends and also going to some of those keg parties. I wasn't, you know, a total <laughs> nerd. <laughs> I was mostly a nerd, but I wasn't a total nerd. <laughs> and I, um, I just remember I came, like the next time I was home on break, my mom and I said, let's, we had both written our first chapters and we said, let's trade chapters and read each other's. And, um, and I just remember this experience so well because my mom read my chapter and she, in the middle of it, she burst out, I always knew you thought I was a hypochondriac. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. It was very, um, it was sort of this great moment to feel like, wow, I knew what that experience was like for me, but I had no idea what it was like for her. And she didn't know exactly how it was for me. Like, you know, the diagnosis chapter in the book, it, it talks about me like, um, you know, going out for dinner before the diet, before I knew she was at the doctor and I was out to dinner with my boyfriend at the time. And I wanted so badly for him to really be there for me because I was very nervous about this doctor's appointment. She said, the doctor thinks maybe something's wrong with my pancreas. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. You know, even at 17, you kind of know that sounds weird. I probably have never heard the word pancreas other than my biology class. Um, and I really wanted my boyfriend to be there for me and he wasn't really being there for me because he was also, you know, he was like 18 at the time. Um, so like, of course, in hindsight, he wasn't really able to be there in a bigger way. We were both kids, you know? And so, um, that's, you know, there are things like that that are at the center of the diagnosis for me. And then for her, there's, um... There's a lot of like being in waiting rooms and waiting for these doctors and that uh, like just all the awful scenarios you're imagining in your head as you're waiting for this diagnosis and then you get this diagnosis and you're then you're deciding with your husband how to tell your children. And so um, we just saw immediately how you could tell the same story from two different perspectives and ha have it be so different. I mean, um, when the Showtime show, The Affair, um, began a few years ago, when I started watching it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the book in a way of, you know, oftentimes right. the same scene, mm -hmm. but from his point of view and her point of view. And right. it's just, um, I think it's always interesting to get to really see someone else's perspective. Yeah, I, in you know, it the book proceeds in such a way that, um, you know what the overarching theme is. You know what you're going through. But I found myself um, anxious, pleasantly anxious at a lot of parts because y you never know what your reaction will be to the same event versus your mom. And have, having been a daughter, and uh, you know, still being a daughter, and now a mother, I can appreciate that you're, the reasons you're worried in a time like that are completely different. And um, I want to know what how your perspective changed going through something like this where you are given a concrete amount of time that you allegedly had and at the end it ended up being um, multiple times that right so it was a prognosis of you know having um, a matter of mere months and like you said it was three years before her death what did that teach you about um the value of of a strong spirit during a time of tragedy or or what did you learn about from watching your mother endure something that couldn't have been easy to really not know the exact way it was going to go? Um, it's really hard to live in that limbo. I think that's probably one of the hardest parts for anyone who, who is um, trying to deal with someone who has a terminal illness is that you don't know how much time is left. Um, there's a part of the book where 
my mom was talking to um, a nurse, a guy named Cliff, when she's in the hospital, she's waiting to get like an x-ray or a CAT scan. And um, of course, she's always talking to whoever is around. So she's talking to this lovely nurse, Cliff. And he says to her, you know, Sally, my father had brain cancer when I was younger. And, um, you know, we thought he was going to die any day. I mean, he had brain cancer. And, um, and he said, my father ended up living for 10 years. And he said, every day we lived as if he was dying and we should have just lived it as if he was living, which is what he was doing. And he said, you know, don't live your disease, um, live your life while you're waiting to get better. And that really changed some of her attitude and perspective about um, just how to think about her time. And she retold that story to me when I was in college and I think it helped me too to say like, okay, she does have this illness. She has lived past those two months. Um, so what do we do with this unguessable amount of time that we have? How do we choose to live it? Because the weird thing about someone being terminally ill is that your daily life still continues. Like I still had to go away to college and wake up in the morning and go to classes and break up with boyfriends and get new boyfriends and um, all that everyday life keeps happening. Um, so how do you balance those two things that feel so at odds? You know, it feels so at odds to keep living your normal everyday life with this kind of dark cloud over your head. Um, and I think we were so lucky because we did get our friendship back in that time. And that's really what the story of the book is about. It's about us reconnecting um, on a different level, on a level that's more mature, on a level that's more sympathetic and empathetic towards the other person. Um, and it's, um, I don't think it's something that you do consciously. Um, I think it's hard to really make a plan in that time of like, now we're going to be best friends and now we're going to, like, we didn't, you know, I think some people just make certain decisions in that time. Some people decide we're going to take a mother-daughter trip to Greece and that's going to be this thing that we do in that time. Like, we didn't do, we didn't have any, like, big things we did in that time, but the book is really about all these small moments and all these small ways we came back together. And I think that's what the majority of people do. You know, the majority of people Absolutely. don't go off to Greece. They just have these tiny moments of reconnecting the same way we all have in all of our relationships in our lives. Yeah, life is made of the small moments. And I think that uh, parenthood really drives that point home. I, I personally, I don't know why this chapter impacted me so much, but your prom, choosing your prom dress shortly after her diagnosis was incredibly profound for me. Um, looking at it through the lens of a mother and imagining how she must have felt seeing you as a grown up and, you know, going into this phase of your life, I was brought to tears just, um, you know, and, and you, you pick this gray dress, you talk about how you saw it, but you almost didn't want to concede to your mother that you liked it as much as she initially liked it. And then you try it on and it's perfect. And she, you come around and she loves it. And she's calling you Missy. And I'm like, it, it was a moment for me that was just so it was just so poignant and so well done. But it is it's proof that these these small moments are what it's about and and it's just woven so beautifully through every chapter in your book well and it's funny i spoke to a friend recently who also lost her mother to pancreatic cancer um but when she was more in her 30s and um she was talking about she read the book and she was talking about the prom dress chapter and she said i don't even remember getting my prom dress i was like what <laughs> she was like maybe i went with a friend to like the mall or like picked something out she's like i don't even remember it she was like I was struck by that chapter so much because when you have a parent who's ill, every moment that happens within that illness is so ingrained in your memory and takes on such meaning and is, is so powerful and so connective between the two of you. And that's what's so special about that time. And I said, you know, I'm, 
never even thought about that because so many of the memories that I have from that time, it, like, like I said earlier, like you can't really, I don't know what that prom dress shopping experience would have been like had my mom been healthy and never had that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would just be a fleeting moment in my head. Um, it, you know, it's quite possible that would be the case. Um, but it's hard to even conceive that it would be that because of how powerful it ended up being in my life and and in, in the book. Um, but it's really this moment of us trying so hard for a sense of normalcy and trying so hard for a connectiveness that we're both missing um, and trying so hard to have this moment even though we're going prom dress shopping a month or two before any of my friends will because I mean it must have been maybe two weeks after her diagnosis that she said Missy let's go prom dress shopping and we both knew why she was suggesting this trip early and it's so painful for me that she's suggesting it early Um, and I'm sure it was painful for her too but also so beautiful that she did you know if she did indeed only have two months left that's part of how she wanted to to spend it and um you know in the book I'm dying for this maroon dress that's all I want is you know you're a teenager and you have this favorite color and you have this idea and I would draw doodles in my notebook of what this (laughs) dress would look like I mean that's just what consumes your world in that time and then she picks out this gray dress and I say that is not the dress and then I try it on and I do secretly really like it, but I, you're right. I don't want to concede to her. And I still want this like idea in my head of, of what I, you know, had pictured. And, and then I think, you know, if she isn't going to be alive at the time of the prom, I want to, I, you know, I want to be wearing the dress that she picked out. And I think even in that time in my life that I was in such denial and in so much pain of her diagnosis, I did have some little moments of clarity, I think, of like, hang on, if, if, if I'm really picturing myself at this event in June, stepping out of a limo, do I want to be wearing that maroon dress that I find somewhere, or do I want to be wearing this dress that my mother chose, even if she's not here? And yeah. I'm thankful I had some of those moments of clarity yeah, as a teenager, because as you'll see in the book, I really don't have a lot of other <laughs> You do. I mean, uh, listen, you it's it's not sugarcoated. It's real, and um, it doesn't mean it's not it's not beautiful and poignant and strong, but, um, you know, this is not a topic that you, that you need to sugarcoat with. People uh, relate to what you talk about. I mean, even if someone hasn't personally experienced this depth of tragedy, they still appreciate the the parenting, um, you know, the parenting relationship between a mom and a daughter. You even talk about how your brother processed grief differently. So I think, you know, it's, it's, and how, like you said, it changed her marriage and her relationship with your father. There's just so many elements of it. You also talked in the book about um, how your parents were great at making many moments matter. Um, How do you, as a parent, try to sort of um, adapt that lesson into your life and make those mini moments for your kids? I make so many mini moments and I get so heckled by my husband. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you're doing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I get ridiculously heckled. You know, I'll say, I'll say, you know, I'll say, you know, my daughter Willoughby, I'll say like, she, you know, she now points at things. You know, that's a new thing. She's pointing. It's new. And my husband just rolls his eyes and he's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, that's a milestone. That's a big thing. And, you know, every, I mean, if I could celebrate every day, I probably would. It's one, you have to, though, right? You have to. And, like, and I'm just, I'm such a sentimental person. And I actually thought that I got that from my mom And I have learned since having children that I actually got that from my dad because my dad is the one who will text me every month to say like, you know, Willoughby is now 10 months old. Happy 10th birthday, Willoughby. And my dad and I always had a tradition, we still do, that we celebrate half birthdays. That was always, and my dad's half birthday happens to fall on New Year's Day. So like, it's the running thing that like, I call him at midnight to say, Happy New Year, and I always have to say Happy Half Birthday. Oh, that's cute. And my son and I now have this tradition where on his half birthday, 
we go to the deli around the corner in our neighborhood in Brooklyn and we we get one big cookie and we split it in half and we each have half and that's our half that's birthday so tradition sweet. and so I'm, I'm keeping half birthdays alive but I um you know I mean I think I've always been a very sentimental person um and I mean I'm sentimental about clothing like particular clothing from a time and I'm sentimental about all of my old journals that I keep and I just um I'm very attached to the the memories of things and Mm -hmm. the nostalgia of things and um I think um the biggest way this came about was like the day after my son was born I said I looked at my husband and I was crying and I said he's he's one day old he's not zero days old anymore and my husband was like Oh, oh honey, it's gonna be a long road for you. That's hysterical. That's what we call a hormonal moment. And those beauties last for years after the kids come. I can identify. Listen, I I cry. I cry at everything. So I'm like the last one to think that you are kooky for that. Because you especially in that early stage, there's a gonna you know, when you read that little post that went viral, there's a last day for everything. This might be the last day your child falls asleep on you, and I'm like, like crying. <laughs> And it's so funny because in the book there are these moments of like my mom was always a very she cried very easily, and as a teenager I tried to really set myself apart from her and I'm like I don't cry at every little thing I don't cry much da da da, um, and it's really to my own detriment because you see in the book that I'm just holding all of these feelings in and like mm-hmm. if I would have a good cry probably the book would be only a chapter long, <laughs> um, but you know and now as a mom. Oh my gosh, so many things make me cry. My son looks at me and says, like, I love you. And I I mean, I can't hold it together at all. So I'm like, oh, was that like a thing where like my mom cried easily? Or was that a thing of like moms cry easily Mm. and something changes in your DNA? I I mean, I think it does. I really do. I I hate to ask you this last question because it's going to be impossible to answer. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, What is what is the big takeaway after having put this book out into the universe um told your story allowed your mom to tell her side of it um is there one overarching sort of um lesson you learned or something that you took away maybe a moment of strength or um something you reflect on that makes you feel proud of your journey um, or something maybe that you would want someone who's gone through a similar experience to know because if 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 to me if nothing else, it does such a marvelous job of making people feel less alone in their journeys of grief. But I want to know maybe from your perspective what you hope the resounding feeling is after putting this book out there. Oh, um, gosh, what a question. Um, I think what the book has kind of taught me is that for a long time I, um, I really fought against this idea that my mom was still present in my life in a way people would say oh just talk to her and I'd say that's not going to do enough I want her here like that's that's not going to work um and I found as I was working on the book and as I got married and as I became a mother I just I feel her presence so much more now than I ever did And I thought it would be the opposite. I thought as each year went by, she would become less and less present to me. And really, it's been the opposite. And I feel so much that there were times in this book where I was alone writing it, um, but I didn't feel alone. I really felt her there writing it with me. And... um, and I'm, you know, I'm going to have to channel some more of that now because I'm about to do these events at various bookstores where I talk about the book and I'm feeling really sad about her not being there. And I said this to my husband recently I, and I said, you know, you would think I would have realized that she's not going to be there for this moment. It's been 17 years since she died, but I still, a part of me wants her there so badly and had this vision when we were working on it together that she would be there and we would be this like mother-daughter team promoting it together and I think it's a time in my life another kind of one of these milestone moments like my wedding and like having my children where I 
I know when the day comes, she'll be there. It's often, I find like the anticipation of those events, that's the worst part. And then on that day, you really feel the presence of your loved one there. So I, I think if you're in a place in your grief where that person doesn't feel present for you, it's okay. Like you can't force it. I couldn't force it. The times when I didn't feel my mom there or I didn't feel like I could talk to her, um, it's okay to have those moments of not feeling that person around, but like it might come back to you. And I, um, it's been so comforting to, to feel that nearness um, to her again. So I, I hope that that might happen for other people too. Well, I cannot recommend the book enough. It's called The Goodbye Diaries. And tell us again when and where we can pick this up, Marissa. Sure. Um, and thank you so much for having me, Sunny. Um, so uh, The Goodbye Diaries will come out on May 7th, um, right prior to Mother's Day. And um, it will be available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com and um, most places online where you buy books. And if you are in the tri-state area, um, I will have some uh, live events that I love. I would love for you to come to. And you can go to goodbyediaries.com to find out more about those events. Thank you so much for letting me talk about this with you and um, put, your, put your great story out there. Marissa, have a uh, wonderful Mother's Day. Enjoy with your little babies. And um, yeah, we'll be seeing you soon. Happy Mother's Day to you as well. Thank you. What a great conversation with Marissa. Um, I personally cannot recommend this book highly enough. And if you have someone in your life who's going through something uh, similarly difficult, I promise you'll pull a lesson or two or some strength from uh, Marissa and Sally's story. Again, that book is available anywhere you get books, and you can also check out goodbyediaries.com. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of 30 Something with Sunny. If you haven't already, would love if you would click subscribe. That way you will be notified of new episodes as they come out. And if you also have a moment would appreciate a rating and or review, which helps to keep this podcast visible to others who might need or like the information that we put out. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check me out on Instagram at Sunny Abada for all sorts of podcasts and other blog updates and have a great day. I will see you guys next time.